Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast, season two, episode nine, Love and Apology Languages, or Why We Fight and How We Make Up Again. As always, I'm your host, and my name is Laura Boyle. Today's guest has an amazing professional background to give perspective to the interpersonal relationships and conflicts we're going to talk about today. Their work as a coordinator and clinician for a countywide forensic nurse examiner program for living victims of violent sexual trauma requires a certain amount of anonymity to be applied on the internet. So here with us pseudonymously today is my friend Orphney. Orphney has kindly agreed to discuss relationships, conflicts, and conflict resolution from both their professional and personal points of view as a polyamorous person with several years of experience in multiple relationships and as someone who works teaching people to deal with conflict and trauma situations. So I'd like us to talk a little bit about this sort of general idea of love languages and how they end up applying to polyamory. If any of our listeners don't know, the five love languages come from a 1992 book by Gary Chapman. And his book is kind of extremely Christian overtoned. Uh but once you sort of peel off that outer layer of it and get down to the concepts underneath this idea of people having different ways of expressing and receiving love is, I think, an interesting way of looking at it, seeing that people sort of fall into different big general buckets of how they express or receive love. And I think you could see it as that applies a little bit differently to someone who's in polyamorous relationships than monogamous relationships. Would you agree with that as a general statement or not? I definitely do. Um, you know, just like with as many different flavors as our, our partners can come in, so too do our different dynamics and potentially the different types of languages that we use between separate partners might be completely different for a different dynamic within a multi-partner system, um, whether it's polyamory, non-monogamy, or any other title that you want to put onto it. But I, I do definitely agree. So I found that what the book expressed as this idea that you have to get sort of fluent in your partner's languages that if your way of expressing love generally is say words of affirmation that you want to use words to tell someone that you love them but what they want is more like acts of service they want you to like do the dishes to show that you love them it becomes even more complicated in a polyamorous system or a non-monogamous system because you have more chance of not overlapping or of overlapping less with more partners. You have to learn more languages or you have conversely a greater chance of having already learned these languages depending on how much you date around sort of thing. Uh, so it can either be a really good thing or a really complicated thing. <laughs> no, I definitely agree. Um, so one of the things that I like to remind people about is just like you said, really important in polyamorous um, situations, definitely 
to have a reciprocal fluency in these love languages, not only to make sure that you understand what it is that you're requesting of your partner um, for your affirmation of affection and all that good stuff, but also potentially, um, in my experience, making sure that the way that you're expressing affection towards somebody is not potentially traumatic to them. So in the opposite direction, um, because it isn't really just, you know, neutrality moving into, you know, positiveness, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we, we regress into, um, you know, the, the negative connotations um, of, of past trauma and doing it in an informed way. Absolutely. And also so that you can tell when you're interacting with not just your partners, but with your metamors, what sorts of steps you're taking in terms of not just romantic relationships, but friendships, whether they're sort of welcome overtures or things that are sort of triggering or bordering on those traumatic experiences for them. Because oftentimes people have baggage around those experiences that they may or may not be willing to share right at those first moments uh, that they sort of recognize and are willing to share only as those boundaries are pressed up upon. And like, being willing to admit that that's what's happening and pause and recalibrate as you go is really important. And I think generally just recognizing that all of these are two-way streets, as you said, is really necessary. And I mean, definitely, like you said, with, with metamors involved and, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily have an open table, um, I, I think it's the, the kitchen table method of equal exchange and communication between metamors and you know other extraneous partners and people who aren't in your immediate engagement. And it, it really is a, a wave-like experience in, in the way that um, these uh, actions or words can affect not only the targeted person, but you know expanding outwards, just like you said, and how people have different boundaries and how does that translate into respecting those boundaries um, while also honoring your own needs. Right. And some of these love languages have an easier time having some of those ripple effects than others. For example, for most people, words, for example, are one of those media that are harder to accidentally have massive ripple effects like it's harder to have words that you just say casually to a partner or a card that you give a partner have big ripple effects outward through a polycule uh, as opposed to actions that you take or time that you like quality time that you end up spending that could end up being more noticed or leave a bigger impact that might ripple outward, right? Because time is one of those things that is finite, unlike affection or unlike love, right? It's one of the few actual zero-sum things in life. So as much as one of the big messages of polyamory is not to consider things as a zero-sum entity, Time is one of the few zero-sum things that there are. 
still engaged, right? So for people whose love language is quality time, they have to figure out how to still balance their calendars and how to not get overwhelmed by NRE and just run into the sunset with their new partner and not just go, well, let me put all of my time in my Google calendar into the new person who I am head over heels in this rush of positive chemicals with and forget about their existing partners in, you know, this rush of great happiness. And it's partly your job as a responsible new partner to simultaneously go, oh, I'm so excited and want to grow this relationship too. But as a person who wants you to be happy, I want you to be happy in your other relationships as well. So are you also spending time with your other partners and still keeping time to like stay employed and stuff? How? When? How are things going in those other relationships? Are you spending quality time with all of them too? And that isn't to say that you're like the keeper of your partner's other relationships, because that's not your job, that's theirs. But it is something that especially if quality time is also your own love language, you might want to take a moment to consider in a way that you don't have to in monogamy. Right. And I think another um, one of the love languages that definitely has very finite barriers like that, potentially, depending on the the method of exchange, is also receiving gifts or gift giving. Um, I personally hate receiving (laughs) gifts. I feel like it's a bribe. That's just me and a reflection (laughs) of the trauma that I've had growing up and then having that persist into relationships where I affirm like, please do not give me stuff because it feels overwhelming. And all of a sudden, I, not that I believe in, you know, needing to pay somebody back, but it's just intrinsic to me to feel like now there's a debt over my head, which with a lot of therapy and all that other great communication and exploration on my own part, I know is not the truth, but unfortunately that's still my, my yuck whenever I, I experience something like that. But the flip side of that is also being savvy of, your partner's capacity to spend money, to craft whatever mechanism of transportation of this gift could be, you know, the other side of it is potentially a family life, rent, um, other partners who have these needs. Yeah. One of the nicest things about the receiving gifts like love language is that it can often be sort of equally activated for most people by like teeny tiny things, by thinking of you and remembering that your favorite candy is M&Ms and picking that up on the way over, right? So like encouraging your partner to do that sort of gift giving as opposed to the grand gesture gift giving can be a kind of easy solution to that fatigue or that feeling of, well, you're overdoing it for some people, certainly not for everyone and probably not for someone who's got a certain amount of gift trauma, right? But for someone who it's more like, oh, I can't afford to give you things back. It balances it for someone who that's the main concern, right? Um, It lets the person sort of scratch the gift giving itch without creating such a burden of return 
but it doesn't balance it for someone where it's more of an actual significant issue in their past. And there's so many ways that, I mean, a lot of these languages can overlap with each other. Mm-hmm. Like you could say, you know, gifts can be an abstract thing. So like I'm, I'm gifting you, you know, a, a date or, you know, a set period of time that isn't typical for a normal scheduled exchange of attention with each other, something like that. But definitely coupons for different kinds of quality time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that there are some people who struggle with being able to provide, let's say, words of affirmation. They don't necessarily have the the vocabulary or the awareness for being able to verbally fulfill somebody's needs for affirmation. So sometimes it translates into gift giving because it's something tangible and you know what this person you know, ticks with. They buy a book of poetry by someone the person likes. Yes, exactly. And I understand that that can be such a thoughtful exchange and that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But in, you know, again, just speaking from experience, it's been one of those things that it's typically, you know, a very knee-jerk thing to be like, here, take all of this, like, because I don't know how else to make it up to you. Like, it's not the person who you would be well-suited for. Right. No. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But, you know, I I do understand how it can be a a very validating thing for for somebody to want to to gift or to be gifted. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) just not me, unfortunately. (laughs) And so there's all of these different languages, which I think we've touched on four of them at this point. So we've touched on Uh, words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, and quality time. So physical touch is the only one that we haven't mentioned. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It doesn't just mean the sort of obvious like sexual physical touch. It also means little things, cuddling, running your hand down somebody in passing, all of those little things. Uh, And all of them can be expressed in sort of a variety of ways and people can find, as we mentioned, sort of overlapping ways of expressing these. And most people have a couple of them that they default to, either that they sort of learned in their families of birth or that they got comfortable with as a young adult. And most often people have two or three of these that they default to or that they learned pretty fluently by the time they're in sort of their mid-20s and then they choose partners that are also good at those and when their partners aren't good at those those are the relationships that fizzle and one of the things that make polyamory complicated is that you kind of have to get better at more languages than that because it's a relatively small dating pool. Not that it's tiny, but relatively small compared to the monogamous dating pool. And so if someone already gets along with you and has similar interests, the odds that they also speak the same love languages as you are not so incredibly high. I think of this as a positive because it makes you learn something. 
I have friends who talk like this is a curse because it's a really challenging positive. Maybe this is because one of my love languages is acts of service, right? So I look at this as like the ultimate act of service, learning somebody else's way of doing the thing. But I can see how it would be incredibly difficult if you didn't want to learn to do it their way. Right. And again, like we mentioned boundaries a little bit, but I, I think that it definitely is kind of one of those hard stops in the shock of getting to know new partners. And like you said before, there are some people who just, they meet somebody, the chemistry happens, sparks fly, and they're just gung-ho because of one aspect of attraction usually, whether that's a, a personality click or otherwise. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work to really fleshing out the, the entirety of these people. And I think one of the reasons why it is so easy to fizzle out is because we're going from one extreme to the other, potentially, where we see this person, they're appealing, we, we want to include them in our partnership, all this great stuff. And then the labor that goes into communicating and also listening, not just hearing somebody, but truly listening to them and and translating that, it's a lot of work, whether it's for a romantic partner, platonic acquaintances, work relationships or otherwise, it's, it's labor, it truly is. And, you know, in this way, we're looking at how we're going to exchange that labor. Um, And for some of us, depending on those boundaries that we have ahead of time, or insecurities or anything like that, it is definitely a barrier to be able to translate these um, learning opportunities into something truly tangible and valuable, while also not crashing and burning from the highs of immediate attraction with somebody. And sometimes a lot of the barriers translate in ways that we totally don't anticipate to go, wow, I never realized that it's really difficult for me to provide physical touch. Gosh, what does that mean? And that in itself can be a very reliving and traumatic experience to have those inner depths into what makes us tick and all that good kind of stuff. But, um, you know, like you said, for some people, it, it really is a, a true act of service to dedicate that, that time and that energy into learning how to translate these different languages, not only what does it mean, but how are we personally capable and willing to provide these, um, these forms of validation. Right. And realizing that like some things aren't things you're particularly good at, but are you still willing to do to the extent that you're able the version that they need? And past that, are you willing to do whatever their sort of second best thing is? Because most people have a second best version, right? Like I am not as good at my partner's number one love language as my partner is. So I mostly default to his number two love language. And 
this usually means that he's doing his number one love language the majority of the time and I'm doing the second one and that works out fine and like once in a while we switch for a minute but that's fine because his number two love language is my number one and then we trade occasionally so we're pretty well suited just by accident right but with his other partners there's some differences in that sort of ordering but it's all relatively compatible everyone shares at least one love language in that mix and so it's pretty easy no one had to off the bat entirely learn a language with other partners who I've had in the past I've had to entirely learn languages that I didn't speak at all and it was a lot more effort it was incredibly challenging trying to learn to speak gift giving or gift receiving gifts I think it's called was for me the most challenging I'm really bad at receiving gifts you guys like no it, way <laughs> it sounds like something that should be easy but I always feel like the gift that I'm giving isn't any good compared to the gifts that people are giving me so I receive them very graciously I write excellent thank you notes I do not give gifts well and I make very silly faces while trying to give gifts because it's something like this. There it's are psych gags happening during this podcast, you guys. <laughs> just total psych gags. I'm making like entire Disney monster faces. It's not. Oh, anyway. But that aside, I am now good enough at giving gifts that even my mom doesn't shame me about it, <laughs> right? And I'm from a Hispanic Catholic family. They shame me about everything. There is, you know, like a hefty, thick butter layer of shame on everything the guilt tm (laughs) so these are all lessons that are like available to be learned and it's mostly a matter of sort of trying to meet each other in the middle the person who has the love language tries to explain to you what they need and you try to get there and when you don't quite get there they thank you and then tell you what was right about it. And if you don't understand what wasn't from them saying what was, you say, okay, what wasn't? And then they tell you what wasn't. If you, unlike me, don't like having to infer anything, you can ask them to tell you directly what wasn't. If you, like me, prefer not to be told directly your faults, stick with my formula. 
I'm of the school that just says um, for anything, uh, I'm confused. Can you please explain into a very customer service friendly uh, approach? Yeah, see direct humans. There are direct humans in the world. I'm not. I'm from a guest culture. You have to make me guess or else I will not be happy. I'm a critical introvert. Any type of exchange that I have with another person has to have a purpose. <laughs> I guess. Ask cultures. Ask <laughs> cultures. They yes. Want to ask. Yes. <laughs> so, love languages and missing the mark on each other's love languages is one of the top reasons why people end up fighting. It leads to people feeling generally kind of unappreciated and generally sort of missing the mark such that you're less forgiving of each other when a disagreement comes up. This doesn't mean that you're like always going to be constantly fighting. It just means that this leads to like an underlying not so happy right? So that being the case, it just kind of sets the stage for some of these not-so-happies. All of these not-so-happies, this being sort of why we fight in big scare quotes, brings us around to, if that's why we fight, how do we end up making up afterwards? Because we're not going to worry too much about the actual fight today. We've all worried about the actual fight enough times. <laughs> I spend enough of the blog going over the actual fight. If you want some links, they're in the show notes. The same author has a theory that he calls apology languages. He made up five of them basically to mirror the five love languages. One of them I think is kind of a cop-out, but you can tell me if you agree or not, Orvni. The five apology languages that he names are expressing regret, accepting responsibility, making restitution, genuinely repenting, and requesting forgiveness. From my point of view, uh, requesting forgiveness is kind of a cop-out, but you can disagree with me if you want. Oh, I, I agree. <laughs> Requesting forgiveness, I was like, well, isn't that kind of how we got to this point well, to right. begin with? <laughs> to me, that feels like what has to happen before you do any of the other ways of doing the thing. But to be honest, I think it's pretty much just there because he wanted to have five to mirror the other five. And there's a way that I can imagine it as an obligate singular, which is like the act of begging somebody, um, which I mean, if that's what makes you tick and that's how you can feel validated in an apology, that's great. Um, but otherwise, I, I agree. It's just kind of a, a prerequisite to the rest right. of these the items. The argument was that in and of itself, the requesting forgiveness could be the step that someone needs, and it could be the only step that someone needs, and some people just forgive after that. Therefore, it's its own thing. And I'm like, it sounds like it's a prerequisite to all the others, though. 
what I'm imagining right now is John Cusack with the stereo over his head and yeah. like that that is the embodiment of I mean depending on how you view that scene either the obligate act of requesting or just my, <laughs> there it is my picture for the blog was a dude standing there with a thing taped to a sign saying forgiveness because like that seemed to embody that portion of it so uh but the other four did seem like real separate ways that one might request forgiveness differently and that one might want to have forgiveness requested differently uh that might make a difference right like because I have met people who want their apologies issued in all of these four different ways. So some people do want restitution versus regret versus uh, repentance, right? Like there are definitely people in my life who want things made up to them. Uh, and I'm sorry that I've used that little old man voice for making it up to them, but... And the fist pounding. Don't forget the fist pounding. It's true. I am fake pounding my fist without actually pounding my fist because it will shake the desk. <laughs> loud um, noises. <laughs> yeah, there can be no loud noises. I have a microphone. Um, but, like, the making it up to you is a lot simpler when it's like, I've broken something of yours, so I'm going to buy it for you, versus when it's an emotional harm. And so some of these, I don't know if it's reasonable to make something up to someone when it's like emotional pain. I've definitely seen the flip side of that too, where somebody knows in their heart of hearts that they need that, you know, repentance or something where they're like, I need you to make this up to me, yeah. but they don't really personally know how it is that they want this person to make it up to them besides just making the original conflict go away, which like you said, for a lot of emotional issues, there is no going back. Potentially there are bridges burned and that could be for the better of the dynamic or it could be damaging um irreparably so um but there are some people that i i feel like with the you know i need an equal exchange of of apologetic behavior sometimes we as the person who is requesting these things we don't know to what extent it will be until these feelings are corrected and that could be also potentially damaging in that earlier ripple effect that we mentioned for other partners depending how it is that you ultimately do need that apology reciprocated to you and how that might be interrupting to other dynamics and for many different reasons, depending on, is this a tangible item that can be restored? Does it cost time, money, so on and so forth. But I think that no matter what, it will cost time, not only for the immediate people in this engagement, but also beyond and how that's potentially borrowing time from other, um, dynamics and other relationships. Um, so not only is it important for us to know, you know, how, how does this person want to 
be apologized to um, in whatever form that that takes, but also being able to know how to speak that language and, and voice what it is that you're expecting reasonably so. And how does that translate into the, the true actuality of the conflict and the conflict resolution? And is this something that we can move forward with? Well, right. And sometimes people don't know how their expectation will translate into a given situation. They know that generally they need one of these things, but they don't know how it's going to translate into a given situation until they're in it. And they know that it needs a certain amount of time or a certain amount of effort, but they don't know exactly how it's going to look or how long their forgiveness is going to take exactly until they're in it. And like, I had a therapist who said that for people who she knew who held grudges about negative situations, that it always took two to three times as much good behavior as bad behavior to overtake a pattern of bad behavior. And that this wasn't like a particular theory. This was just a thing that she had noticed her clients doing. <laughs> so she was like, you know, I can't promise you. This isn't super scientific. This is just, it takes between two and three times as much good behavior as bad behavior for people to actually forgive someone and believe that they're behaving well now. So and especially if you're coming out. into that with past trauma and past similar experiences, a lot of that grudge development and that reason why it takes so much longer is because we have a lot of projection going on in these types of situations where, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what are we mad about? <laughs> what are we upset about? Um, can we win this quote unquote? Um, where do we go from here? And for a lot of people that inward looking is very difficult. And it's especially difficult for people trying to also come in and say, how can I repair this? I, I totally agree. It can take so much longer. Right. And there's a post on the blog called Fighting to Lose that's about how when you view things through this lens of I'm doing this to win, you're way more likely to make everyone in the fight lose the fight, right? And so ideally, whether we're fighting with our partners or our metas or sort of enveloping the whole polycule in this dynamic of argument, you shouldn't be attempting to win the argument or prove that you're the one who's making the correct point. You should be trying to reach consensus because if you're trying to prove that you're the one who's correct, even if you're the one who's getting apologized to at the end, no one is going to feel like they won at the end of that. Everyone is going to feel like they lost. Here's your crown of thorns. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Enjoy. Like, regardless of who is saying, like, that they're expressing their regret to whom at the end, it's going to be bad, right? Uh, and regardless of your apology languages, that's going to be the case. 
these languages are only really going to help if it's a very straightforward case of a minor conflict that you're ending cleanly. Like minor conflicts can end clean, someone apologizes, you're fine. These languages are really pretty important. If you're ending a minor conflict with an apology, these languages are much less important if you're dragging out a conflict to the bitter end for someone to win. Uh, if you're doing that, pretty much everybody's losing. Everyone owes somebody an apology and it's going to take a while to heal trust. I think like one of a, a good example I like to do when talking to whether it's my students or my patients or otherwise, when we're talking about conflicts like this and is it a mild conflict or is it something that's a, a little bit more complex um, where we're potentially mad, <laughs> hashtag mad, <laughs> many different things, but we're only really acknowledging one is the most superficial um, face of what it is that we're upset about. So one of the um, examples that I, I like to use is if you get mad at somebody for not doing the dishes, are you mad because there are dirty dishes or are you mad because there's unequal sharing of chores within the household and how that translates to you as a a disrespect of your expectations as cohabitators or otherwise, you know, is the discussion really about cleaning the dishes or is the discussion about dedication of, of time and energy in the shared space? And in order to even get to the point of, you know, are, are we resolved at this point? Sure, my partner can do the dishes. Am I satisfied? I mean, that really depends. Um, maybe I am really, you know, tiffed that there are dirty dishes and that is something that's very important to me and keeping a clean space um, and those expectations of, a, of what I consider to be a, a safe and desirable living situation maybe doing somebody the dishes for me, providing that act of service and doing this in the making restitution phase of restoring that apology and hopefully mitigating that conflict. Maybe it is as easy as that, but you know, with that also comes the complex acknowledgement of what is it that I, I am actually mad about? Is this something that really is a violation of my validation as a partner? Or is it just that the dishes are dirty and somebody needs to clean them? And this guy's the closest person I have to point a finger at for not following through with keeping a, a clean living space. Yeah, so some of these things are more complicated like that. You sort of have to figure out which part of this is what's making you mad. And sometimes it's one thing and sometimes it's the other. And it could be both of them for the same person on a different day or even on the same day like you might be equally mad about both those things on a given day the dishes are my pet peeve I might be equally mad about both those things if the dishes aren't done it is my like triggery why isn't the kitchen clean oh my god my whole house is a wreck if I can't even keep the dishes done what is wrong with me Ba, 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 back of my head 
I am turning Anxiety. into a Muppet. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Same. <laughs> if nothing else in my house is clean, I do the dishes twice a day, no matter what. Right? Like minimum. That's it. And then at the same time, it's like one of those things where were the dishes dirty because we're having a failure of executive function? And is it really a question of, you know, doing the dishes or is it really the emotional labor of being able to have enough, no pun intended, spoons to do the dishes. Right, exactly. Um, so. <laughs> and so there's perfectly valid reasons why the dishes might not be done. And there's also totally valid reasons why a partner who I'm living with might not have done the dishes at different times in my life. Like right now, I don't reside with a partner, but twice in my life, I've resided with a partner for four years each. And each of those partners at different times that I've been with them has had periods where they couldn't be doing the dishes because of mental health issues. And either of them, it would have been perfectly valid for them to have not done the dishes on a given day because of that. Neither of them had the dishes as their like triggery, oh my God, is my mental health really so bad that I'm not even doing the dishes? For me, that's the last thing that I give up on doing. Like, I stopped taking showers before I stopped doing the dishes. Whereas <laughs> for none of my partners, is that the case? Has that ever been the case, right? And for, I think, most people, that's not the last thing they stop. So it's unreasonable of me to go, how could you not even do the dishes? Because for no one who I've ever cohabited with, is that a thing? But for me, it's like, uh, oh my God, how could you not make my life easier by doing the thing that will make me feel so much better and make it possible for me to use my limited spoons on doing all of these things? And it's like a slap in the face that they haven't. But for them, it's like, well, it's just a chore that I didn't do because my love language is an acts of service and it's a random chore that she's asked me to do. And so there's that disconnect that we had to overcome at least once before we got past that being an argument. And I, I feel like um, in, in that same way, understanding those acts of service and the possibility for restoring those or providing those in a meaningful and informed apologetic way uh, can be so goofy. <laughs> um, so if you're somebody who, like me, I, I hate receiving gifts. I do not like it. It is, it is not my shtick. If somebody were to do genuine, genuine repentance and let's say, I'm so sorry, and they bring me a bouquet of roses, I already, in, in this moment, sitting down right now, I feel my skeleton erupting from my skin. It just makes me so uncomfortable. And it's, it, it has no, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's an invalidation of what makes me happy and, and feeling valued. But at that same time, it's also not, in my opinion, solving the, the conflict that I had to begin with. Um, so it, it really is such an, an equal exchange of, of literacy and, and having that capacity to translate our needs. And when the big oops happens, 
how do we restore those needs in, in an informed and meaningful, purposeful way? <laughs> but what if they brought you a bouquet of clean spoons because they'd washed them all? <laughs> I mean, if someone... I'm just imagining right now an entire bouquet of spoons. They washed all the spoons, they tied them up in a ribbon, and they brought you a little posy of spoons. Listen, my nesting partner's birthday was on the 24th of January. As very recently, as a birthday gift to him, I bought him new flatware. So it's like very, it's so resonating very I should deeply. email him and <laughs> tell him to bring you a bouquet of flatware. No, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the spoons now. Like, oh my God. <laughs> Someone else's love language, not mine, I'm happy to provide. However, <laughs> it was just, anyway, um, like I said, it's it's so easy that if you have that in, intentful listening capacity at the very basic foundation of establishing either of these, but especially our, our apologies, um, because now we're playing catch up, you know, uh, to, to neutral grounds in the very least, um, you know, what is it that we're actually going to purposefully do that is that is validating to individuals in, in these types of not good, yucky situations? I think that for a lot of people, this, uh, the apology language of accepting responsibility becomes really important. So, this is one that I have trouble with because I'm an over-explainer. So I walk into the room and I'm late everywhere. I have ADHD. I'm late everywhere. I know this about myself. I try to leave early, but I'm late everywhere, especially now that I have kids, but even before that. And I walk in the door and I start explaining what happened to make me late. This is not the correct move, but this is the move I make. I walk in the door and whoever speaks to me first, my answer is whatever made me late, but it comes right off my tongue. There was this traffic on that highway and this kid wouldn't leave at this time because of this thing that they were doing with this sock, with that shoe, with this uh, blah, 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 blah. And no one actually wants to hear it and I can't land the plane on the story and it's just, it's not happening. But what they really want to hear, if there's somebody who wants to hear me take responsibility, I'm sorry I didn't leave on time. I didn't factor in the kids on the traffic. And in a worst case scenario version? Else. <laughs> right. I'm sorry I didn't leave on time. Or the worst at case. the longest, I'm sorry I didn't leave on time. I didn't factor in the kids on the traffic. Done. Right. <laughs> I I'm I'm also an over-explainer. I also have ADHD. I but I'm unfortunately somebody who's in the opposite direction where I show up at least 30 minutes early. Um, which as again a, a very critical introvert, I'm like, okay, made it, and now I'm gonna sit here with my arms crossed until it's exactly that time. I go in, I engage, and then I, I make an Irish exit. And like, that's it. But I, I think that, like you were saying, with the accountability issue is so difficult for some people with being able to accept the responsibility of, of what happened 
in a very critical failure kind of way. Um, so one of, I mean, the absolute worst case scenario situations I can think of is, let's say that you're telling somebody you really hurt my feelings because you said something, a, a, a knee jerk response that could be, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> and while some people think that that is accepting responsibility for that failure, you really just dug yourself about six feet deeper at least. Yeah, no. <laughs> so it's very easy to mistranslate, you know, not only is it what somebody is looking for as the acceptance of responsibility, but also being able to mindfully provide that acknowledgement of accountability, whether we're going way backwards and saying that we're apologizing for someone's reaction, um, where, like you mentioned, it's the opposite, where, you know, we're over explaining and, you know, over validating, I guess. Um, but absolutely, accepting responsibility for some people just to get them to admit that they didn't oopsie is like pulling teeth and, that can also be, you know, in, in very unexpected ways, uh, traumatic for them to come to terms with and acknowledging that what they've done really potentially hurt somebody. And in their minds, they cannot accept a version of themselves where they are wrong or where they have done something um, damaging to somebody else, however small or however large. And even if it is just a minor conflict, sometimes providing that um, acceptance of responsibility is like climbing a mountain rather than just getting over this hill. And um, yeah, it's definitely one of those ones though. Un unfortunately for me, I do have to have somebody who verbalizes and an affirmation of what went awry. <laughs> um, and part of that is for me to also validate in my mind, like, am, am I, you know, going nuts here? Am I overreacting? Because I am so self-critical that having somebody be able to pair it to me in, in very basic terms, you know, oh, wow, like, you know, I, I can see how this hurts you um, and putting a name to what it is that went wrong. Um, and while that is, you know, the underpinnings of most conflict resolution, it really is important for some people for many different reasons. And being able to navigate that landscape in itself for some individuals is a huge barrier for them um, for, again, so many different reasons. Yeah, that is all absolutely true. And <laughs> that all makes perfect sense. Like, I also am very self-critical in certain social situations and really like get inside my own head. The various different apology languages are all different ways of getting at that same result at validating and for lack of a better word, fixing the conflict and the feelings that resulted from the conflict so that you can prove that you sincerely uh, didn't mean to harm the person who you've hurt, right? Because you know that you've hurt them, but you didn't mean to harm them. And so you try to 
repent, to prove that you, you know, to take whatever responsibility, to make, give whatever restitution, to do what you need to do to show that no harm was intended. You may have harmed them, but you didn't mean to, <laughs> right? And so if they're willing to forgive you for whatever the hurt was and whatever the harm may have been, that's up to them. And so having given them the chance to do that, if they forgive you, they forgive you. And that's sort of the purpose of all of those, regardless of the shape that it takes. And the various apology languages are basically different shapes of that same procedure <laughs> of that same sort of expression and acceptance or ability to accept, right? The love languages are slightly more complicated because they're very much more two-way streets um, and they're more completely a conversation because the apology languages are also a conversation because the forgiveness or not is in and of itself, I guess, the other half of that conversation. But it's a much simpler response because to some extent, it's just acceptance or rejection. So either way, I think both parts of that, both of those theories put forward by Gary Chapman end up sort of bookending relationships and the way we sort of expand relationship dynamics. And because polyamorous relationship dynamics are more complicated than monogamous ones, so too is the way we apply these theories across those networks. And so I think in a very basic sense, the way these theories get applied also ripples outward and also is a little bit more complicated because there are sort of more layers, more places for it to, to bubble, to ripple, to turn, <laughs> right? It's not an ocean where the whole thing goes in one direction. And heaven forbid that this is an exchange that ends up having to happen between metamors, <laughs> where metamors are not getting along. Not that they necessarily need to be intimately involved with having a reciprocating love language, but then when you have somebody in the middle or multiple people in the middle in this tertiary experience of interaction, oh my gosh, like the apology languages now have to be translated through potentially multiple people mm -hmm. in order for conflict resolution to occur. You're absolutely right. Well, right. And you end up in situations where sometimes when metas are having conflict, instead of actually adjudicating their conflict directly as they more properly should, they end up deciding to change the structure of their polycule instead and are just like well I guess we'll just be parallel instead and that isn't the healthiest way to adjudicate their conflict but it's something that a lot of people opt for um, and this puts the hinge partners under a fair amount of stress and stresses the love and apology languages of the dynamics that those hinge partners have with each of 
the spoke partners with each of those metas who are having the actual conflict without actually resolving the conflict between the two metas until some later date when they get their shit together, right? And eventually they do, usually, usually get their shit together to some extent. And when they do, they then have to deal with each other's apology languages. They have to take the time to resolve their prior conflict, or they have to take the time to relive their prior conflict and deal with whatever past or whatever trauma or whatever history and baggage they're carrying along with them. And if it's a matched luggage set, that ends up being much more complicated than if it isn't. Um, and as someone who has made a variety of mistakes regarding relationships with my partners and metamors in the past, I can certainly say that it is much less advisable to just go, oh, well, we're going to be parallel now and never talk to each other again than to actually address your problems head on. It's way healthier to just talk to people like people. <laughs> There's also the people who, I mean, can't do parallel relationships um, from a metamorph perspective where they need that previous relationship dynamic where it is kitchen table or, or mm -hmm. anything else where a lot of people have more open channels of communication and accountability, mm -hmm. scheduling, so on and so forth. And um, when you can get into a parallel situation, you know, it's, I mean, that's a, a whole other, <laughs> you know, conversation to have, but it, it can become isolating and it could potentially make these conflicts even worse. Oh, yeah. And so I think one of the things that is important, like you had mentioned much earlier, is the, the sake of arguing to, to not win. Um, sometimes conflicts are simply not worth having, depending on how that conflict is translating the capacity to repair it. Sometimes the healthiest thing is to sever ties completely just because of incompatibility as sound as sound as sad as that sounds. Um, it is something that can be a growing experience for all members involved for some very positive movement, mm -hmm. whether the, that circle reconnects or not. It's something that in the long run, we can become better people and, or at least if not better people than just people who are more aware of, of the capacity for mistake having and how that can impact other people outside of a, an immediate partner. Um, nobody is, is perfect. And just as nobody is perfect and all these mistakes can happen as, as many apology languages and love languages that do exist Sometimes there is that abrupt, nope, this is not happening moment. And whether that's because we don't know how to put into action or to words our apology, or if it's just something that we're not interested in because it's a boundary that is so far crossed, it's, it's not a, the end of the world to have to end that interaction. Um, especially- yeah, There are plenty of other points of incompatibility. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Unfortunately, sometimes it boils to this point where we're in the necessitation of conflict resolution that is irreversible. Um, but, 
you know, ho hopefully there were some tips along the way that gave us the heads up that we're heading towards stormy waters. Um, but that's not always the case. And sometimes we find the, an abruption in our um, apology restorative process that we never expected to be a, a hard stop for, for a lot of us, um, as, as little as the original conflict appeared to be. Um, but it becomes so much more complex, of course, when you include so many other people into this equation, whether they're metamors or other co-partners, so on and so forth. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, especially in big networks, you can find people, metamors, telemores, other people who are loosely connected to you, who you can find who just are really incompatible with you, who you have to just minimize their connection to you. And sometimes that can be really painful or really negative because minimizing that connection can mean that you lower the amount of time that you spend with people in between the two of you. Uh, but sometimes it's really necessary for your mental health or emotional well-being to do that. And people shouldn't feel like they can't protect themselves by doing that if it's something that they need. It's one of those things that I think doesn't get talked about that often because we want to assume that our partners and their partners will always have the judgment to pick not just good people, but people who we would also want to have in our lives. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're not good people necessarily for them to not be people who are good and comfortable for us good for us doesn't mean good necessarily they're not like synonymous and it's i mean you know one of those things that potentially who we think that we are compatible with from that separated type of interaction sometimes it's a positive thing to be involved with people who aren't our typical flavors or our, our typical social um engagement partners but when 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 that fails mm -hmm. <laughs> it is it is such a a a difficult um land to navigate because now it's again so many different people who have so many different needs and we're already focused on very intense feelings for one person now all of a sudden their uh, significant relationship and um value in this other person is coming into question and mm -hmm. even though it might not necessarily involved um you know a a immediate source of conflict um but you know sometimes there are just people who are very sorely incompatible as um connected partners and in, in some sense where when you try to force that relationship man oh man <laughs> It gets, it gets really, for, for lack of better terms, it gets really weird really quick mm -hmm. um, and, and potentially something that is very harmful um, in, you know, questioning our own boundaries and our own gut instincts and what type of meaningful interactions can we have with this other person, trying to overextend beyond that and forcing a, a translation of apology or, or otherwise gets... Um, 
very very uncanny it's it's like you're not really having a relationship with another person it's it's the title really that you're having to appease to because there is no um accessibility on your own terms or on this other person to really have that meaningful inwards engagement Mm -hmm. so (laughs) yeah yeah especially when there's hierarchy involved that can be really challenging and in general just these overarching concepts that we've been talking about today are useful and make a lot of sense when you're actually able to engage with people one-on-one in sort of deeper, more friendly or romantic ways and are able to get to know them for themselves, like in a more meaningful manner. If it's somebody who you're only sort of interacting with on a surface level, these concepts are not as helpful for them. If it's someone you're engaging with as like a party friend, they're, it's not that helpful to be aware of what their love languages are. Like you can by chance be aware of what someone's love languages are because their partner has mentioned it, but it won't matter to you if you're sort of surface level acquainted with them. But if you're somebody's best friend or somebody's partner, or you're going to be interacting with somebody for five or 10 years, then it will matter to you. And so I'm not really sure what kind of note I want to close this on because I find all of this sort of hopeful and helpful, but it's also complicating. This is one of the areas in which polyamory is very complicated. And I don't want to downplay that, but I also don't want to make anyone unnecessarily wary. This isn't something to worry about. This is something to like cross that bridge when you come to it. Circling way back to the beginning, the point of, you know, learning something new. I think that there's so much potential. And I think that's the most optimistic way to look at something that is potentially a very yucky thing to explore either within ourselves or between ourselves. Um, It's, it's a hopeful thing. And whatever your opinion is on, on educating and, you know, learning new things as, as a affirmative labor, um, I think the payoff for it is something that is so excellent that whether it resonates within this immediate relationship or into future engagements while also being able to honor things within ourselves and learning more about ourselves for self-care and acknowledging what is it that we're really mad about? What is it that makes us tick? How does this translate into my wellness as a whole person? Um, I, I think that whatever the outcome is, as uncomfortable as it is to navigate some of these things, at the end of the day, we really do move forward in some general direction, if not at least elevating ourselves um, to have these meaningful understandings of what's going on inside us and how can we 
really loved this other person or multiple people to the fullest extent, which at the end of the day is such a rad thing <laughs> to do. <laughs> Love is is really punk and it's excellent. And, you know, there is no finite capacity on that compared to the other things mentioned here, like time, money, so on and so forth. Um, so to, to be able to love at our fullest capacity and, and do it in a very mindful and informed and expressive way, however that takes form, is awesome. It's, it's so rad. <laughs> that is absolutely true. I think you have hit the nail on the head there. Thank you for talking with me today. Yes, of course. I love being here. Thank you so much for taking the time to have me. So once again, I'd like to thank Orphney for being with us. And since they can't share any personal or professional projects, they wanted me to link a bail project on their guest page in the show notes. So I've done so. I've also linked the several blog posts we referred to on fights, breakups, and love and apology languages. As always, you can find the blog at www.readyforpolyamory.com and subscribing there gets you immediate updates when I post new articles. We've got a Patreon, www.patreon.com slash readyforpolyamory, where subscribing at different levels can get you all kinds of extras and goodies. And there's a Ko-Fi, www.ko-fi.com slash readyforpolyamory, where you can throw a coin in my hat on a one-time basis if you especially liked an episode or a post. Our music, as always, is provided by the talented Vince Conaway, who you can find at www.vinceconaway.com. We'll be back with another episode last week. Have a great one. Bye.